Steve Estes is a pastor who became a friend of Johnny Erickson when they were teens. Johnny had recently suffered a broken neck in a diving accident that left her a bitter quadriplegic searching for answers, as you can imagine. There was a mutual friend by the name of Diana who introduced Steve to Johnny and Johnny to Steve, and Steve recounts his first extended conversation with his new acquaintance. Picture this scene. Here is a 16-year-old boy, a self-described paper boy, visiting in the home of a teenage quadriplegic. Having just met one week earlier in a parking lot and having chatted now for just 10 minutes, this suffering young woman looked with intense gaze into Steve's eyes and said this. So, Diana says you're big into the Bible. Tell me, do you think God had anything to do with my breaking my neck? What a question. And I ask you this morning, how would you answer that question? I don't mean your pastor, and I don't mean your parents, and I don't mean somebody that you know. How would you answer that question? May I suggest that there is no one prepared to minister to souls. There is no one who is prepared to give spiritual counsel until they can biblically and compassionately answer that question. And may I further suggest that you are not prepared to live the Christian life until you are able to see clear on that question. How do you perceive hardship? What worldview kicks in when you experience trouble? What is the grid that you employ to filter suffering in your life? What strategies do you use to endure trial? This is a matter we have to get right. Not only in theory, but also in practice. And this brings us to Hebrews chapter 12, where we find instruction along these lines to believers who were enduring enough suffering for their faith that they were tempted to run away from their troubles. Before we get to the text of Hebrews 12, I invite you to chapter 10 and verse 32. And I'd like us to not just skim over these words, but to really put ourselves in their place and to consider what these believers are suffering. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32. The author says, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light. That means let's go back in time and consider that time when you were first saved. When you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. Verse 33 of Hebrews 10. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison. Now listen to this. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. These people had been through some trouble. We read between the lines in this statement and we know that they had suffered for Jesus. This author is not talking to people who have no idea what it is to suffer. 
But as time had passed, these same Christians had grown weary of the difficulties of the Christian life. That was some time ago, after the glow of their salvation had faded a bit. And now, through the continuing pressures of the Christian life, they were beginning to say, I'm not sure I'm equal to this. Now, it wasn't because Jesus was lying to them. Jesus had always been straightforward with the call to discipleship, hasn't he? If anyone would come after me, he said, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Following Jesus is a one-way trip to death. There's no turning back. They knew this, and they had even demonstrated this joy, their joyful willingness to suffer for Jesus. But spiritual fatigue had set in. They'd grown weary of the difficulty of Christ's path, and some were looking for a way out. So the author writes to believers who have been assigned to run the Christian race in a lane of suffering and who were ready to quit in order to eliminate or at least to reduce the pain. Now we obviously live in a very different culture, a very different world than did these original readers. While most of us do not experience the persecution that they did we nonetheless also occupy a trouble-filled world, don't we? All of us suffer. We all face disappointment. There are trials that overwhelm us. And like the Hebrew believers, we are tempted to respond in a manner that disregards God's call upon our lives. In Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 4, we're privileged to listen in as God counsels these suffering believers and thereby teaches us how we should handle suffering. I, just to throw in here for a moment, I don't think that we should write off this passage and say, since we are not suffering persecution, therefore this passage does not apply to us. I think that all suffering in the end ends up in the same place whether it is direct suffering for Jesus Christ or it is any other type of suffering, in the end it is always a call to faith in God and to trust His fatherly hand. And persecution is perhaps the hardest place to do this because the suffering is so unjust. But having said that, we learn then as God counsels these believers how we should all handle suffering. And we learn first of all, beginning at verse 4, that we must perceive our suffering in comparison with those who suffer more. Verse 4 of Hebrews 12. In your struggle against sin, we just read about that struggle in verse 10, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Saying it another way, one of the most dangerous and fruitless perspectives on suffering is to see our suffering as uniquely difficult. The author will not permit his readers to do that. The meaning of the verse is something like, in your persecution you have not yet gotten close to dying. Your struggle against sin, this, is, this apparently refers to those people who have been opposing them those who have been sinning against them, those who have been trying to squash their faith, they are indeed struggling against the sin of their persecutors. And the author retains this athletic metaphor that we looked at from uh, in the previous three verses of chapter 12, here probably turning to a boxing illustration. You have not boxed in your struggle. You have not in your struggle gone against sin to the point of death. Shedding 
your blood, I think is probably a metaphor there for giving your life. Because I think it's doubtful that the author has made careful investigation to look at all of the persecution that these individuals have faced and to done this investigation to find out that not one of them had shed one drop of blood. I don't think that's his point. I think his point is you have not come to the place of death. This is borne out by the context. What is the context? Beginning at verse 2 of chapter 12, the middle of the verse, we find there that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. Consider him, verse 3, who endured such opposition from sinful men. Talking here about the death of Jesus and the cross, in contrast with Jesus who suffered an ignominious death on the cross, in contrast with the martyrs of chapter 11 who trusted God to the end, please consider, says the author, you have not yet resisted to the point of death. There are many who have gone before you who have died who have suffered unjustly and who have died. You've not come to that point. Now there is a profound, there is profound wisdom in this line of counsel. And it can be applied to us in many different ways. Are you suffering? Are you enduring trial? Is the path God has marked out for you strewn with difficulties? If so, demand your mind to compare your sufferings with those who have suffered more. If your suffering leads to self-pity, if it leads to feeling abandoned, if your suffering makes you jealous of others, if it fills you with the desire to give up and run away from your responsibility and even to quit living, in light of this context, I think we should be embarrassed. We should be embarrassed when we reach such a state of mind. We should be embarrassed because there are a world of believers. There's a world of believers out there who are suffering so much more. Rather than looking outward for inspiration and encouragement, I am looking inward and I'm wallowing in self-pity. Paul said it this way, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. To suffer what is common and then to look at my trial as if it is uncommon is to make God a liar. It is to spurn His counsel. To compare my suffering with those who suffer less than I do is to choose the wrong perspective. If I only had her husband... if we only had their income. Those people cannot begin to understand the pain that I endure every day. They have, it's so easy. No one understands what I am going through. And on and on it goes, doesn't it? This is how our mind tends to go. To compare ourselves with those who suffer less. For the biblical authors compare us, call us to compare ourselves with those who suffer more. I have a moral duty before God to think in such ways. It's all about perspective. Someone once said, I have complained, I complained about having no shoes until I met a man with no feet. 
In the book that she eventually wrote with Steve Estes entitled When God Weeps, Johnny Erickson Tata repeats that simple line and she qualifies it so well with these words. It's not a matter of comparing another's tragic plight in your, to your circumstances in order to jack up a grateful spirit. It's not pitying the poor unfortunate. It's all about perspective. Perspective. With whom do you compare yourself when you suffer? We need to compare ourselves with those who suffer more and to be encouraged there. Secondly, we must perceive our suffering as divine discipline. And this is the primary focus of of this section. Beginning at verse 5, we find here, first of all, a rebuke. As I think verse 4 is a very subtle rebuke. But verse 5 now becomes more specific in the rebuke. He says, And you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. You've forgotten this word of encouragement from Proverbs chapter 3. So first you must perceive your suffering in comparison with those those who suffer more. But in addition to that, there's another perspective that you must embrace. The problem, says the author, is that you've forgotten this word of encouragement. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. What that means is do not dismiss it. Do not count it as significant. Do not turn your mind somewhere else. The Lord's what? The Lord's discipline the training of a child by correction and moral guidance. Do not make light of that discipline, verse 6, because the Lord disciplines those He loves. The very circumstances we so naturally interpret as God's indifference, we must learn to perceive as evidence of God's loving attention. It says here, in fact, even that he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. That's a strong word. It refers to the infliction of significant pain. Some parents say, I've even heard these words, I love my children too much to inflict pain on them. God's love obviously runs a lot deeper than that. The Lord punishes, the Lord disciplines those he loves. Now, did you see, there's this very subtle thing that's happened here, and we we need to catch it. How does verse 4 talk about their suffering? Your struggle against sin. There the picture is sin as the enemy. I'm boxing in this ring with sin, and it's beating on me. And I've got to stay in the fight and keep fighting back. The struggle is against sin. I'm suffering unjustly. I'm in this boxing ring. But notice what is then said in the following verses, verses 5 and 6. This is the Lord's discipline. The struggle against sin in verse 4 is called divine discipline in verse 5. And the point is that even when we suffer unjustly, God is in it. He's big enough to use persecution as disciplinary faith training. Don't lose heart. The Lord disciplines those He loves. 
Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. Endure here is not actually an imperative in the original translation or in the original language, but is translated here as one in the NIV. It's probably better translated, you are enduring. He's just going along with the explanation. You are enduring hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. Suffering is evidence that you belong to God's family. We've got to ask ourselves at this point, don't we, is this honestly how we treat hardship? I suffer hardship and I look at it realizing that God is in it and is treating me as his child. That's the rebuke to these readers. You must see your trials as hardship from the Lord, divine discipline. Now he goes on with explanation from that point on, and it flows fairly obviously here, but middle of verse 7, for what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined, everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. If a man sired a son by a concubine or a slave or a harlot, that son was considered illegitimate in this context. That is, he was not legal heir of his biological father. And it was unprecedented for such a father to assume disciplinary responsibility for such a son. If the father was going to do that, he would adopt that son. So if the child was illegitimate and remained in that status of a non-legal heir, never did that ancient father give any disciplinary attention to that child. It really wasn't his child. I think of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the leading philosopher of the Enlightenment, who fathered five children out of wedlock and abandoned each one of them to a Parisian orphanage. He never disciplined those children, and although he writes so much that child philosophers of our day drink on, drink in, and then spit out, we can say he did not love those children. I do not spank my neighbor's kids. God knows they could use it from time to time, but I don't do that. I do spank my kids. Should my children draw the conclusion that I despise them and love the neighbor's kids? Just the opposite. That's what he's saying here. You endure suffering. It's evidence that you're a child of God. Verse 9, moreover, the argument continues, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? It is a noble heritage to have a father who disciplined you. We respect fathers who love us enough to correct us and to punish our wrongdoing. I read a survey some time ago of troubled teens and the survey was asking them what they lacked most in their upbringing. It shocked all of the researchers, but the most common, the number one thing that these teens said, I wish that I had had, was a parent who laid down rules. Interesting, isn't it? These are kids that were in big trouble with the law. They wanted a parent who laid down some rules. Arguing from the lesser to the greater, it follows that we should all the more submit 
to the discipline of our Heavenly Father. The Father of our spirits here, I think that is saying our spiritual Father, in contrast to our earthly fathers. We should submit to the discipline of our spiritual Father and live. To be subject to the Father who is the source of all life is indeed to live, said one. To turn away from Him is to turn away from life. Continuing the analogy of our earthly upbringing, he continues there in verse 10, Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. A short while and limited wisdom. Fathers do not have a long time to train their children, and every one of us will make mistakes in the process. Verse 10, But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. By contrast, our eternal, all-wise Father always disciplines us for our good. Always. That good is to share in His holiness. In other words, God brings suffering into our lives so that we are distinguished by a moral purity which emulates His moral purity. So Christian, are you suffering today? Know this. God is making you holy. He's purifying you. And yes, that's going to hurt. Verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. It's difficult. It's hard. As I grew up, spankings and loss of privilege and verbal rebuke and unwelcome responsibilities were all painful at the time. I did not like any of it. But I now see the struggles of adult children who lack similar training, and I am eternally grateful for the heritage of discipline that my parents bequeathed to me. That is a gift. It's painful at the time, but it produces fruit. We need to think that same way when it comes to what God is doing in our lives. He not only means well, He is positively producing a harvest of righteousness and peace in our lives by suffering. We notice here the phrase, by those who are trained by it. There's a training process. There's an ongoing process of learning to submit to the difficulties of life that God ordains for us, that we might become holy and righteous and filled with peace. There's something lacking here, isn't there? There is no hint of the health and wealth gospel in this passage, is there? This passage directly opposes the notion that God makes life smooth and easy for the obedient. A little closer to home, among the way that people of our ilk would think, this passage also conflicts with the retribution theology. If all suffering is, in fact, a direct discipline for specific sin, God would counsel the Hebrews here to repent. You are suffering divine discipline because you have sinned, repent, and the suffering will stop. That's not what he says. 
He says you're a child of God. Expect discipline. What have they done wrong? Nothing. They're being misused, mistreated. Yes, they're sinners. Undoubtedly, in any suffering that we face, we can always say that we are sinners and are getting what we deserve and a whole lot less. But there is nothing stated in this book that is a specific sin against which God is specifically punishing them, and therefore the author does not say repent and the problems will go away. The long and the short of it is that God ordains hardship for the people that he loves. In his book, Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis speaks the words right here that we don't dare speak, most of us. But he speaks the words here that we're all thinking. What if I say that I'd really rather not be holy? And I'd really rather not be righteous, and I'd really rather not have peace if it takes pain. We may wish, writes Lewis, that we were of so little account to God that he left us alone. To follow our natural impulses, that he would give over trying to train us into something so unlike our natural selves. But in that case, we are asking not for more love, but for less. To ask that God's love should be content with us as we are, is to ask that God should cease to be God. Those are powerful words. Our struggle with suffering, then, is really a struggle with idolatry. We are tempted to want ease of circumstances and to get our way more than we want to be like Jesus. And that is idolatry. And that brings me back to 16-year-old Steve Estes feeling a hard question from a young woman who has just been consigned to a wheelchair for life. So Diana says you're big into the Bible. Tell me, do you think God had anything to do with my breaking my neck? I should just throw in here, this is a woman that had not come to terms with what had happened to her. She tells her own testimony that the only thing she could move was her head, and she moved it trying to break it higher up that she could end this misery to which she'd been consigned for life. And here's this 16-year-old boy with a question like that. This is what he writes. I'm 16 years old. I'm a nobody, a paper boy, sitting across from perhaps the most popular girl of her huge high school class from two years earlier. The crowd she ran with I saw only from across the gymnasium. Now look at her. I tap my feet to the music. She can only bob her head. I eat my own lunch. Someone has to feed her. 
I'll be walking out that screen door in about 30 minutes. She'll stay sitting in that chair till the grim reaper comes. And she wants to know if I think God put her there. Who am I to open my mouth? I know what the Bible says about her question. A dozen passages come to mind from years of church and a Christian dad who taught his kids well. The great line. But I've never test-driven those truths on such a difficult course. Nothing worse than a D in algebra or puppy love gone sour had ever happened to me. But here's the key perspective. But I think, in my mind, if the Bible can't work in this girl's life, it never was for real. That's a different way of thinking than what we find in popular literature today. The line is, go easy, hide the truth, just be there to understand. Don't speak the word of God in this moment. Now, we have to find our spot. But he felt this was an earnest question, a serious, searching question. And he said, if God's word doesn't apply here, where does it apply? I clear my throat and I jump off the cliff. This is what this 16-year-old boy says. God put you in that chair, Johnny. God put you in that chair. I don't know why. And if you'll trust him instead of fighting him, you'll find out why. If not in this life, then in the next. He lets you break your neck because he loves you. Oh, writes Steve Estes many years later, it sounded so trite. But apparently not to her. And the book that he writes these many years later is about, he says, God weeping over human heartache. His entering our anguish himself and the love that drives him to let us suffer. We must perceive our suffering in comparison with those who suffer more, and we must perceive our suffering as divine discipline. So as it were, seated in the chair before God, he now calls us to arise and to stand and to hear these last words. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. We must thirdly respond to suffering with courage. Therefore, the preceding discussion demands a purposeful response. Strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. The picture is of a discouraged, exhausted athlete who, whose arms droop and whose knees don't want to bend any longer, who's long past a second wind and is now looking for something that is unique, something that comes from another place. 
He says strengthen, which means to revive or to straighten your limp arms. It's a call, not to, physical, physically, to a physically depleted athlete. It is a call to revive one's sagging faith in God and His purposes. Make level paths for your feet. That is, quoting Proverbs 4.26, the meaning seems to be that we must take the moral high ground. Said another way, we must persevere. We must lay out a path before us, stop the stumbling, stop desiring to get off it, run the path that is before you, so that the lame will not be disabled. Now, the NIV here if we can, says this, if we continue in moral weakness under suffering, we may come to the place of incapacitation, being disabled. I think probably better with the Greek would be, rather than disabled, would be the translation turned aside. The lame are already disabled, but that Greek word can also be turned aside, and that is how it is usually used in the New Testament. So I think the idea here is someone who is lame, someone who is a pulled hamstring or a knee that's out of joint, what do they want to do? They want to come off the side. In either case, disabled or to come off of the course, to turn aside, that's the danger under suffering. The danger in suffering on the perspective side is that we don't compare ourselves with those who suffer more and keep things tempered that way and follow the path of faith that others have laid out for us. The danger in perception is not to see suffering as the discipline of God, but the danger when it comes down to it as to how we in fact live is to pull off the course, is to give up the ship, to leave the faith, to say it's not worth the effort. To do what God calls me to do is something I don't want to do, and so I'm going to quit. Don't quit, says the author. Now, you're not going to find the strength to persevere, the strength to continue on, the strength to endure in yourself. God is, even in this call, directing us to find our reserves spiritually in Him. I'm not talking about a second wind says the author, says God to us. I'm talking about a supernatural power that comes from God alone to carry on and to keep running till the day that it makes sense, whether that's here or later. We're not to despair. We are not to retaliate. We are not to run away or quit. We're to run the lane marked out for us with energy and with courage. And we need each other in that battle, and we need God in that battle. Back to the book, The Problem of Pain, Lewis pens this classic line, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. Suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Is it not then a sign of our fallen nature that we prefer God to whisper? We love ease. We love when things go our way. We like it when God just whispers. It's a little less comfortable to read God's Word, to meditate upon it, to ask what He is saying to me, to receive counsel from a godly person, to attend church and submit to the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Those times are a little harder. Or whatever it is, to place ourselves in a place where God speaks to our consciences. 
but how we shy away from suffering. Those times when God lifts His voice to declare His glories to us like no other time. So may we learn to perceive suffering from God's perspective. And to realize the privilege that we have to hear His voice loud and clear. May we learn to want the holiness and the righteousness and the peace that is the sweet fruit of the bitter root of suffering. Are you suffering today? Learn to compare your ordeal with people of faith who have honorably suffered more. Get a Christian biography and look at reality. Talk to somebody who's gone through something more and hear the story of faith. Secondly, perceive your suffering to be the discipline of a loving Father. That's His word and His confidence to us. If I belong to Him and He has ordained that I walk through suffering, He has done so with purpose and intention. He wants me to become something I'm not. And thirdly, carry on. Don't give up. God is up to something good in your life. Keep running. Don't quit. Let's bow for prayer. Father, just as I talk to this congregation and see and look into their eyes, I know that this passage of Scripture hits so many in so many different ways. And Lord, as you know, this sermon, like I trust all others, was first written to myself. I pray that together we might long to see what your word is saying and that if there is any concern with that, that we would go to your truth and to your word and seek it out and learn what it is that you want for us to understand and to know. And I pray for those in our assembly who do suffer along so many different lines. Some it's physical, some it's financial, some it is disappointment and trial and and the difficulties that others bring into their life. Whatever the case might be, Father, I pray that you would meet each person here and that right now in your own unique way through the Spirit of God, you might put your arm around each of us and teach us and whisper into our ear what we need to take from a passage such as this. We thank you that you, our Father, love us enough to discipline us. And though it is difficult and hard for us, I pray that we would endure it knowing that you have a purpose in view. And I ask God that we'd be reminded of that promise also in your word through the Apostle Paul, that all of the suffering that we endure is working for us a greater weight of glory than we could ever understand. So may we endure the suffering and the trials of our lives in a way that will end in glory. 
that we would permit you and submit to your loving hand that we might become holy and righteous and filled with peace. Father, we cannot bring this about in our own strength. But I pray, Lord, that you would bring it about to your glory and to your honor. I pray for those who are suffering in particular, unique suffering. I ask, God, that you will lift them up and encourage them with the word of God today. There may be some among us whose suffering is simply the result of their ongoing sin because they've never come to a place where they have become your child. Not something passed on to them from their parents, but something that they have contracted with you through your grace. Come to that place where they have embraced you as their Savior. I pray, dear Father, that you would bring any such person here among us today to a place where they see the light. That they would realize that there's suffering in this world wherever you go but that their suffering would be, would be transformed from mere consequences of their wrongdoing to the discipline of a father who wants to create in their life holiness. I pray that you would permit them, Lord, to lay down the burden of their sin at your feet and to embrace Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Draw such a one to you this day, we pray. And may all of us leave here giving thanks and glory to your name for who you are. Though as our Father, you confuse us at times. Sometimes we even battle very much with what you have chosen to do in our life. God, may we uphold each other in that battle. But may we all come in the end to the place where we submit to your fatherly care. Humbly accept what you have brought about. I pray that you'll change us and direct us and move us to this end. In Christ's name I pray, amen.